Welcome to another podcast from the Oxford International Centre for Publishing Studies. This recording was taken at the London Book Fair for 2013 and is a seminar entitled The Gamification of Publishing. This was hosted by the OICPS and is chaired by Angus Phillips, head of the Oxford International Centre for Publishing Studies. The three panellists for this seminar were Nathan Hull, Penguin's Digital Product Development Director, Simon Meek, Creative Director at The Story Mechanics, and Becky Deckler, Web Publishing Manager at John Wiley and Sons. I think we're ready to start. Uh, I hope everyone can hear me at the back. So, uh, good morning. Thank you very much for coming along to our seminar, The Gamification of Publishing. My name is Angus Phillips, and I'm the Director of the Oxford International Centre for Publishing Studies at Oxford Brookes University. And uh, I'm your chair for this seminar. Um, the format is I'm going to ask each of our speakers to speak for around 10 minutes, and then we're going to open up the debates and discussion. Um, I want to introduce them first of all, starting on my right with Becky Degler, who is Web Publishing Manager at John Wiley & Sons. She's worked as a website product manager for Wiley's publishing partners, mainly focusing on academic societies. And she's been a gamer since the early 1980s, when she was introduced to her first Atari, and is delighted that logging all those hours of gaming is transferable to her work with communities now. And then second on my right is Simon Meek, who is Creative Director of the Story Mechanics, based in Scotland, which is the interactive storytelling arm of Turn Television Productions. He's been responsible for a variety of digital projects, including uh, Slobovia TV for Channel 4 and The Beauty of Maps for the BBC, and I think we might hear a little about uh, his new adaptation of The 39 Steps, which is just launched round about now, I think so. Um, he was a journalist and TV producer before he became a games developer. And then third on my right is Nathan Hull, who is Penguin's digital product development director across their whole adult and children's divisions. And he's responsible for their digital portfolio across apps, audio, APIs and all variations of ebooks. And he's replacing Eric Pang, who unfortunately can't be with us this morning, so we're very grateful to Nathan for stepping in. So thank you uh, for stepping in at the last minute. He also leads uh, Penguin's digital strategy across anti-piracy as well as new business models. And he joined Penguin from Universal Music where he worked with major artists including U2, The Rolling Stones, The Killers and Take That. But he is now working with Jamie Oliver, Stephen Fry and Moshi Monsters. So I hope that's sufficient compensation. <laughs> Uh, so we're going to be talking about the gamification of publishing from a variety of different angles this morning and with the growth in the use of tablets to consume media and other mobile devices such as mobile phones, um, what is happening to the boundaries between books and games? How can content become more interactive? That's something book publishers are asking themselves. And there are now books of games, games of books. So what, for example, do we call an interactive children's product and does any of that matter any longer, what the terminology is? So our aim this morning is to examine a range of topics including our continuing desire for exciting stories in whichever format they're delivered, um, how publishers are looking to develop a strategy across a variety of platforms including ebooks and games, and are there ideas from gaming principles such as motivation and rewards that can teach us something about how we engage people with uh, our content as publishers. So 
Um, the, the order is I'm going to ask Nathan to speak first, then Simon, and then Becky. So, firstly, Nathan, thank you very much for coming, and over to you. Hello. Uh, hopefully I'll make a worthy substitute for Eric. Um, so, you've summarised my role. I, I, I won't go any more into that. I think we're going to try and do a nice segue from one to the other. So I'm going to tear up from a, a traditional... Can everyone hear me? I can't, yep. Uh, from a traditional uh, publisher's perspective. Uh, and touch on gaming in, in all elements, and then hopefully as we move through, you'll actually get some demonstrations as well, which you won't get from me, we'll just get some, some logos. Um, so, as, as Angus said, uh, we, we're looking at how games uh, as a product type, or the gamification of other uh, more traditional product types, both print and digital, um, can be employed uh, within our general publishing strategy. Uh, and that's, that's meant numerous, numerous things uh, in terms of how we, we think as a publisher first and foremost and the types of people we have to employ um, and then getting them to think very much about the, the purpose of what we're going to do if we're going to look at making something vaguely interactive in some form or taking it to the next steps of, of moving into gameplay and I use these terms in the, in the loosest sense because I think they'll be determined later and we'll flesh some of this out as to what some of these terms actually mean. Um, and I think first and foremost, it's a really murky world for traditional publishers in terms of what we can and can't do anyway. Even if, if we wanted to and we had all those new skill sets and we actually have the right developers and the right people who can, can create these new infrastructures and architectures around gameplay, even if we could do all that, what can we actually do? Because lots of people, uh, you know, this is a book fair, first and foremost, gradually changing as the years go by. But um, it's about rights, and rights are a huge, huge issue for us from a traditional publishing standpoint. Namely, lots of people already have gaming rights. If you start to animate a character within uh, an ebook form or an app form, you're going to maybe be conflicting with animation rights. Um, if you're working with the likes of Roald Dahl, as I have the great fortune uh, to do, you know, Roald Dahl is taken into theatre world and into movie world. Who owns those rights to gamify? Are you going to be gamifying, gamifying the novel, or are you going to be gamifying the movie adaptation of a novel? So there's lots and lots to unpick from the very outset of starting to think about what you're going to do. Um, firstly, I was going to talk a little bit uh, from a very simplistic level about what a, a, a significant impact that gaming, in the broader sense, has had on, on Penguin's children's publishing. And that's meant uh, our licensing uh, department uh, who, who, sorry, a licensing brands department who would bring in the likes of Peppa Pig into publishing world, as, as one example. What, what that actually means to us, and historically, uh, say in the 80s and 90s, that has meant working with TV companies and doing publishing adaptations of, of TV characters and, and licensing in those brands. More recently, I think where, where we've been very, very prevalent is, is looking at the game space and the app space and the developer space and what that means. And our most successful brand uh, to date within that space will be Moshi Monsters. Uh, we were in uh, in a relationship with with Mind Candy, who developed this very very early on. Uh, they they had the foresight to see that publishing would be a key part of what they were trying to achieve within their virtual world, which has gaming within it. It's not a game per se. Maybe it is. Maybe it isn't. But there's there's certainly an element of that in there. Um, and what we've done with the likes of Moshi. I think today, hopefully, otherwise Eric will shoot me, we have announced that um, we're going to be the publisher behind the highly successful Plants vs. Zombies apps, Angry Birds, and then I'll, I'll linger on Whale Trail briefly. 
we, we're the publisher for all these uh, for all these entities. They are games first and foremost. They come from somewhere completely different to the traditional publishing world. Um, and some of the stuff we've done, it, even though I might not think it's publishing in, in the truest sense, it may not involve storytelling. We, we publish uh, sticker books, coloring activity books for these these brands. We we create collectors guides for these brands. Sometimes mixing with the physical world, so there's collectible figurines mounted in the front of these things. Uh, all of them will include virtual codes, uh, codes to redeem a virtual gift of some kind on the cover of a book. So you, you're starting to see that these, these boundaries blur already, even in the most simple sense. In the, in the instance of Whale Trail, we, we've taken that a slight step further, uh, and we're now reflecting that across some of the other iterations I've shown, where we are adding the story. Whale Trail was just invented as a game. It's about humpback whale, who, who runs away from bad things. There's some baddies in there, which is always good in kids' publishing. Uh, and they chase rainbows and collect stars. And the first thing our editorial team sat down and said was, why can a humpback whale fly? And the, the app developers who create this, who are now, we're, we're looking at as, as an author, that they're, they're a new breed of authors to us, didn't know. They didn't really care. There was just a whale and it could fly. Why, why do we need a story? But what we were finding when we, when we did a lot of research with children is, is they sit down and they ask these things, and if it isn't there, they create the stories themselves. It's like with any type of gaming, if, if you're talking about physical gaming, a child picks up a toy, the first thing they do is they give it a voice, and they'll give it a story, and they'll take Luke Skywalker, and they won't care that Batman's ever met Luke Skywalker, they'll bring in Batman at the same time. You know, one's got a lightsaber, one's got whatever else Batman has, and they'll do stuff, and of course they can have stories, and they will add voices, and they'll create background stories. And that's something we now look to do um, from a completely kind of different standpoint. So we novelize games. That's one way in which publishers are starting to work uh, with the, the concept of gaming. The next step on would be uh, non-kind of app-based games. These are full-on multi-million dollar uh, console-based uh, concepts. Skylanders being one, again, Eric, who would have been here, uh, acquired this very, very early for Penguin. I don't think it was the only person going for it. I think it was it was like the talk of the toy fair a couple of years ago, whenever it was. Um, but but saw the instant excitement that this concept would generate for anyone who has happened to bypass this somehow. This isn't just this isn't just about gaming. It's about physical figurines uh, that you mount uh, on a on a portal. It saves you your data. There's a collectability around the physical product as well. Lots of opportunities there. Um, but then you gameplay. But there's collectability too. And as a publisher, we're doing the same kind of formats with these things I've said about Moshi and Angry Birds, etc. Uh, and we will do novelizations, but we're also building apps. Uh, so even if uh, a new type of author or developer that we're working with has come from an app background, that doesn't mean to say if you're in the right place as a publisher, you can't also create apps. You might not create a game, but you'll create something else. And if you're clever, you'll work with them. And if, if, if they've got the foresight to work with you, you know, the thing they've created in a digital form can interact with the thing you're creating in a digital form. We can also take these kind of things into different spaces. Penguin is not an education specialist, but we have uh, a trusted brand or series of brands that resonate really, really strongly in schools. Um, I was speaking on the panel this morning about how um, children's storytelling and the different iterations that now has to take uh, in digital against print. And, and one of the things I've said is there are some children who simply will not pick up a book which is sad, but if, if, we can, if you can pull them into to, uh, stories in a different way by different characters, there's something we can win with there to get stories across in a different way. And the first step of that also might be 
uh, gamifying light education apps, which we're starting to do. So via our Ladybird brand, we publish um, curriculum-based phonics apps, early spelling apps, early maths apps, you know, early learning to read apps, and they're done with very traditional, soft, comfortable Ladybird branding. But if that doesn't resonate, we also have the opportunity to take Peppa Pig into that world. If that means a child will connect with something they wouldn't otherwise, then we can do that. And it's just another form of very light, educative gaming we're doing. Um, another example, uh, and a slightly more adult example of how we've worked with gaming companies is a, a long-established relationship we have with, with you, Ubisoft, who created the phenomenon of uh, Assassin's Creed. With this, it's really simple. We would love to do it. We're always going to Ubisoft with a million and one other ideas, but their organization is so vast, it's just trying to get in there and get, get other people understanding what we're trying to achieve as, as a publisher. Because we can't profess to know everything about gaming companies, and they certainly can't profess to know everything about publishing companies, but we both consume each other's products, so we have an understanding. But the first steps with these guys are, we're just novelizing, much as people have always novelized films, we're novelizing these games. Um, so this is hugely successful, it's in multiple languages all around the world, but they are simply novels of the games. But it's established a different type of relationship for us as a publisher, and there's lots of these opportunities out there. Um, and then kind of drawing it back a step, I, as I was kind of thinking about what I would talk about and what would be relevant, I realized long before I was ever a Penguin, we even <coughs> dipped into gaming in this sense, which was really, really interesting, I didn't know about this, Hugely successful, uh, Arthur Spell, uh teen boy, kind of Doctor Who meets James Bond type series. And uh, we worked with Nintendo on this. Guess what they did? They put books on a DS. It's a read, it's like a flip book reading experience. It's really bizarre. Anyway, I still thought it was vaguely relevant. Just that, you know, we, we've been there for some time. Um, so now, as, you know, because of our size, we, we have, we've had the fortune to be able to recruit the right type of people and think about the right type of skill sets we need and how we need, as a publisher, we need to adapt uh, in terms of production, uh, routes to market, to retail, any of these kind of new things um, that we create. We've also had to, you know, grow an enormously different contacts list. The types of people we now speak to are vastly, vastly different. The conferences we attend are vastly different. We will come to all the book fairs, but we're also at South by Southwest, we're at GDC, we're at E3, because this is the new talent source for us. And quite frankly, as publishers, if you're not there, even if you don't think you can make those acquisitions or you're not yet set up to do it, if you need to be in there and having this, this new mindset, because these people tell stories in a completely different way to those of us may have done so far. Um, some of them do it really well. Some of them do it terribly, and the ones that do it terribly, maybe there's just a unique opportunity to, to get in there and, and try something different. And it may just be representing their gaming brand in a, in a, in a sense that you understand very well, but it, it may be something you can grow over time. And I think the reason I was showing this is this is probably three to four years old. So that's how long ago we really started to think about this. Um, but it's taking time for us to get those wheels in motion. Um, but this is really one, you know, one of the challenges with reading being taken onto tablets. As a publisher now, I don't really see, with respect to my, my publishing counterparts, the, 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 the competition isn't really the other book publishers. You're vying for the attention of the consumer on a tablet, and they may still read on the tablet, but they're also watching TV, and they're playing games, and they're doing social networks, and lots of other things. So we need to think about that space, and, and how that can fit within our, within our world, if we still want to feel safe until we can take a leap of faith. Um, 
the other few examples I wanted to say, aside from these, where we, yep, where we are starting to gamify, uh, are simple things, and a lot of them are kind of uh, they're historic things, like create your own path apps, whether done in a visual form or, or even in a text form. You know, eBooks in simple vanilla black and white eBooks, you can gamify to to a degree. There are audio-only gaming experiences. You know, Papa Sangre, Nightjar. You know, I encourage you to look at these things. They're, they're, they're narrative arcs, that's all they are, but they're just presented in a different form, I think it's really, really interesting to look at. And then the last slide I was going to put up, um, where we're working from a very traditional sense, this is a book jacket, which I think was just quite important to put there. Charlie Higson, The Enemy, the world, does the world really need another zombies game? Maybe not, but we're going to make one anyway, because <laughs> Charlie loves zombies and he's an incredible writer. Um, and we've brought this quite late into, into the play. This isn't a marketing ploy, you know, at the start of an author's career to try and get a different type of reader on. This is four or five books in. We're going to do a summary uh, game. This is a full game. This isn't like a light touch on gaming in some sense. It's a full tower defense game, and it's about zombies. The most, most important thing is we've engaged with our author early. He wants to do it, he understands it, and he is writing the story arc to sit behind this game, bespokely for this game. So this is our first real jump into what I would see as kind of true gaming that we're, we're trying to touch. Now hopefully that's a, a, some kind of neat segue for you. <laughs> <laughs> some, yeah, some, um, uh, sorry. Yeah. We'll just uh, do a, a, a not so neat changeover. <laughs> just a couple of uh, caveats, I suppose, before we get them. Um, my preferred method of communication is actually rambling. Um, however, <laughs> I've attempted to create a, um, a series of slides, uh, of which I've had to hack back sort of ridiculously. So I'm not 100 percent sure which ones left, which ones are left. Um, so it's as much of a, 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 a surprise, I suppose, for me. This is what it is. Um, I'm just going to accept um, this. Right. Okay. There is a full screen mode. I do believe. Ah, there you go. There you go. Right, so that's us. Um, <coughs> we go by the story mechanics. Uh, we've actually been around for six years. Um, I think that was mentioned. Um, and we were set up initially as part of um, Turn Television Productions, which is a TV production company uh, in Scotland. Um, the original movement into digital interactive sort of storytelling content was very much around, at the time, the broadcasters sort of. Um, desire to want to do what they were calling like the 360 or multi-platform content, which, you know, they were very enthusiastic about for a while. Um, and then it's sort of, I don't know, they, they've never really quite found out what they really want to do. Um, but we've been with them on that journey, and um, at the beginning of it, it was very much about saying, well, look, let's, let's take our skill set as sort of storytelling, sort of storytellers from a film and TV background and try and move that into the digital space. Um, rather than trying to set up a new media company, we're not really technology people, we're still at our hearts sort of storytellers. So yes, yeah, so that's been six years, and about um, two and a bit years ago, um, I was doing some um, work with Sony PlayStation, on, Sony PlayStation on the Wonderbook, and um, we were chatting with the Heavy Rain producers. And that, there was a really interesting conversation going around about that, and they were sort of saying, um, Heavy Rain, okay, it's, it's an interesting one, it's a story-based game, and we're putting it out there as a bit of an experiment to see whether anybody wants this. And they sort of put a notch in, in, in their own sort of sales post and said, look, we're going to ship 200,000 copies of this. 
And it was sort of 39.99 when it was released, so you know, 200,000 copies would have done them all right. It wouldn't have paid back the development for a particular game. However, when they did shift their 2 million copies in the first two months, they were like, oh, we're onto something here. And I think that was an early indicator that, you know, story is very, very powerful. And it's, you know, as we all know, but for some reason we've always thought that gaming and story were sort of not really bedfellows. Um, However, what the, what the PlayStation producer did also say was, yeah, but we know the story's not actually that good. Which is a bit like, all right, so you've based the product on a story, which you know is sort of slightly flawed, slightly derivative. Yet, yeah, as a gaming story, it was, it was pretty incredible. Um, so that, got my, that got, just got my mind racing. I thought, well, God, I think we've got all these incredible stories on the bookshelf. Why don't we just get some of these and actually create them into sort of proper multimedia interactive storytelling experiences. So we went off on this journey to create something called a digital adaptation. And I've written on my part here terminology, because I, um, I think we should come back to that later. So I'm going to um, break at that point, read through what we slides are, come back to 39 steps, and then talk about terminology. All right. So um, I thought initially I'd just say something about stories and games. This is purely my perspective. It might be completely wrong. Um, but what I would say is almost exclusively story in the, in the context of games is used to contextualize gameplay. So basically, story sets up the gameplay. In every, every game, that's what happens, you know, whether it be in the princess being stolen, you've got to, you know, chase down the, the, the giant crocodile jumping on mushroom's heads on the way until you save the princess. And you may experience a story within that gameplay experience, but the driving factor of the game isn't the story, it is actually the gameplay. And even if you look at sort of uh, you know, an incredibly um, well-received recent release like Bioshock Infinite, which was absolutely praised for its world, its storytelling, its voice acting and stuff. When it comes down to it, what you've actually got is a first-person shooter couched in an incredibly you know, nice, uh, vibrant world with a story arc underpinning it, but by no means is Bioshock a story game. Um, so, uh, what's interesting about that is that if the focus of games continue to be about adrenaline competition skill effectively. What we're always going to be doing with those games are basically ostracizing a huge percentage of the audience who don't feel comfortable with that. You know, people who don't regard themselves as gamers. Um, now, interestingly, PlayStation, Microsoft, Valve, who's the, um, you know, they, they run a, a the, this dominant uh, digital distribution platform called Steam, they'll know this. And, you know, what they're looking to do is broaden their appeal beyond their current sort of, uh, gamer base. And they're looking at lots of new ways to do this, and a lot of it involves story. Um, so this slide is just my overall, this is just stamped on my brain. Uh, basically, interactive entertainment used to be synonymous with games. I mean, it was, it was interchangeable terminology, but now it's so much bigger. And you can look at that purely by just opening up the app store and thinking, this is interactive entertainment, how much of this is games? Okay, a lot of it is games, but there's still a lot of other stuff. And what we're seeing is interactive entertainment get bigger than games is that new genres start to sit in there. And I would, I would argue that story is a, is a new genre which is sitting in that interactive entertainment, still sort of, you know, bubbling away there, sort of maturing within its infancy, basically. Um, yeah, here's another random slide. Um, so, um, interactive entertainment audiences are really interesting because actually, because touch points of interactive entertainment is pretty much to everybody now. Like everybody's got some form of interacting with the content, whether it be via their web browsing PC in the house, whether through IPTV, whether they happen to have a PlayStation, Microsoft, Wii, Wii U, under their television, whether they have a smartphone, an iPad. You can sort of see where I'm going. You know, it, 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 
interactive, the potential for interactive entertainment is almost ubiquitous. Um, so this touches upon these, um, these, these audience categories. You've got the self-acclaimed gamers. By this, I just mean people who like to call themselves a gamer. I mean, I would say I'm a gamer, although I probably don't even qualify as part-time now because my life is taken up with work, children, and watching dramas with my wife. Um, <laughs> but on the rare occasion that she goes to bed early, I occasionally get 15 minutes playtime um, on that. Um, so, by and large, that means it's young adults, self-proclaimed gamers, I would say, uh, pre-family. Also, um, often people think gamers are teenagers, but the reality is, and this is from the publisher perspective, the gamers they want are actually young adults. Basically, people buy cute young children for stuff, and if you've got money, you can buy yourself stuff, but actually, the teenage generation, which don't have that much money and are a bit spotty and maybe a little bit dislikable to the parents at the moment, don't really get that many freebies on the, on, on the game side. So, and also, if every game is 48 to 49 pound, actually what we want is people with disposable income, people are gonna buy more than one of these a month. So we've basically, somebody's got 100 pound to spend on games a month. Um, which could be, uh, uh, I suppose, a teenager racking up mountains of debt. Um, but uh, on the whole, I'd say it's the 20s, early 30s. Uh, you've also got this uh, casual gamers phenomenon, which we probably all know about, which is, you know, again, mass generalization here, but it's sort of slightly older, female skewed. This is largely people who play Bejeweled constantly on Facebook every day. But again, you know, these are a phenomenon. They don't call themselves gamers, but they are sort of casual gamers as much as they like to interact with content. They like the pastime. Um, my favorite one is lapse gamers. Now, lapse gamers, are basically the people who used to, the first generation of people who bought home computers. They bought the ZX Spectrum, the Atari ST, you know, um, the Amiga. And what was interesting is in those old days, actually it was text-based adventures. There were story-driven gaming experiences like Myst and Seventh Guest and Jinxter and, and even Blade Runner sort of sits in there. Now, if you look at these now, you probably wouldn't even qualify them in, as games in the way that we see games. Now, the interesting about lapse gamers is it came to about the mid-90s, and as computers started to get more powerful, and as the advent of the 3D first-person shooter, where we got the sort of experience for the first time, like you could shoot somebody in the head and watch the brain explode in all different directions, um, the, whole, um, the whole sort of market changed into adrenaline-based games, basically. And all these lovely titles like Seventh Guest Mist sort of fell by the wayside. Um, and what happened is the lapse gamers also fell by the way wayside. Now, if you look at this demographic now, they are probably in their 50s plus. So using the kid analogy, the kids are probably leaving home, so they've suddenly got free time back, um, which is good. Um, but also they've got money, and they actually have an inert, uh, sorry, they have, they have this sort of passion deep inside them, which means that they actually do like interacting and they do like games. And then you've got the never gamers, but basically their people are never gonna play a game in any form, so they're probably, you know, the last on our list. Um, so on my interactive entertainment is bigger than games, I'd say story is obviously bigger than games. So, you know, if you ever want justification as why games should embrace story, it's because it's a bigger market. You know, like, you know, games might be big, but it's not quite as big as the following that EastEnders gets on a daily basis. Um, you know, and with our digital adaptation of 39 steps, of which that is one of the screenshots of a part of it, which is actually just out today. Um, the, um, I was sort of shocked to find that John Buchan's original thriller, over its lifetime, had shifted just over two million copies, which actually isn't a bad figure. But then if you do compare that with the 14.9 million people who tune in to watch Coronation Street, you turn EastEnders on a daily basis, you sort of realize that this sort of, you know, story is, is prevalent. 
And what we love about books, and what I particularly I love about books, is the stories that they contain. The problem with books is not everybody wants to consume their stories in the format they're presenting them in. So that sort of underpins our um, notion around digital adaptations, where story becomes the driving force of the experience, and gameplay is transformed into becoming a story mechanic, a, a way for you to interact and experience the story, rather than gameplay just being about sort of competition and, and, and adrenaline runs with bookends of stories. So the thirty steps, um, and I, I, I probably have got two minutes, okay, so um, that's the cover. Um, these are the platforms we released, it's released on um, Windows, Mac, <coughs> Linux, iOS, so that's iPad, Android, so Android tablets. So we, um, we developed it in a games engine, which allowed us to spit it out onto all these platforms. Um, bear in mind that each one of these platforms as well has a different audience profile. So if we're thinking about you know, the, the potential of um, games or story games reaching out into new sort of effectively readers, you do this via sort of platform analysis and thinking, oh well, this sort of person has an iPad, this sort of person plays on Linux games, etc. Um, and we've been accepted onto Steam, which is that big boy gaming platform, which is great. And they actually accepted us saying, uh, we know this isn't a game, but we sort of quite like it. So they put it on, which is good. Uh, we're on the App Store, we're on the Android Store, we're on Amazon as a physical box product, we're in WH Smith as a physical box product, we're in Morrison's. Um, and how did we do that? That's another screenshot from it. Um, we actually built a, pu a publishing consortium which included Faber and Faber from the, from the book side, Avanquest from the box product gaming side, and KISS, who basically is a uh, sort of distri games distribution management service who basically took our product and got it onto all these digital platforms. So it's available in like 60, 70 different download uh, locations. Um, I haven't really got time to show it because I talk too much, but um, that is quickly. That is a, what, what, what I'll probably do is maybe when this finishes, I'll just quickly run it on the computer as you're walking out, then if you want to see, you can see it. Yeah. Um, but basically it's all about location-based storytelling. So we, we basically storyboarded the book and we use the words, the actual words from John Button's uh, story to sort of take you on a journey through the world that exists in the book. We don't show any characters, the characters are still very much an imaginative force of the reader, but we do depict, in this case, 1914 Britain. And, and all of the lovely bits around that, for instance, with partnerships with like The Observer and the Scotsman newspaper. So when you're finding the stories about Richard Hannay on the run, because they think he's a Portland Place murderer, alongside it, you've also got stories about the suffragette movement and stuff like that. So bring the world alive around the story actually helped us to create something new. Um, and that's just kind of a random slide. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much, <laughs> yeah. Okay, thank you. Over to you. Um, sorry, I'm just going to turn the laptop over here and cause some microphones. So, yeah, there is actually. That should work, hopefully. Um, well, my name is Becky Degler. I work at John Wiley and Sons, which is an academic publisher. Um, so, we don't have games and we don't have stories. So, <laughs> get ready. <laughs> um, let's see, I'm going to turn it. I'm trying to bring up the presentation, and I can't talk and do things at the same time. Okay. All right. Um, so, like I said, I'm from John Marley and Sons. We're an academic publisher. Um, I've worked there for five years now, and I've worked primarily with society publishing partners. Um, so we publish websites. Our products are websites, not books. 
Um, so we do websites for our societies to give information about the society to sort of um, build their community, advertise conferences, manage their, their conferences, <coughs> manage call for papers, that type of stuff. The generation of content, but also the creation of those communities. So interaction and gamification is a big element for us. It's something that we really need to look towards. And that's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk a bit about um, the impact of this gaming revolution on something that doesn't seem like it's that relevant, academic publishing. I mean, the two don't necessarily seem to go together. Academia is very serious, very weighty. Um, it's sort of something that's been a stalwart of civilization, really, if we're in the mood to polarize, right? Um, and gaming is just a bit of fun. It's trivial. It's something that you do in your spare time. So the two don't necessarily sit hand in hand. I should go back, sorry, to my previous slide. Um, but they're really a lot more similar than we think they are. Games have been around since the beginning of humankind, and there's a lot that we can learn from that. That's the end of the philosophy section, by the way. Um, uh, I don't want to suggest that in academia, we should turn everything into games because it's not the right audience for turning things into games. And I'm not going to propose that we do that, but I would say suggest that there's a lot that acad academic publishing can learn from the gaming revolution. Um, so I just want to look at the numbers a little bit. Even if you don't consider yourself a gamer, um, I think uh, Simon classified you as not, never gamers. But even if you don't consider yourself a gamer, most of us are participating in gamified systems in some way or other. Most of us are logging into Facebook, which is a game. Facebook, you get points, you get likes, you get comments, and if you get more likes and comments than your friends, then your um, status update appears above somebody else's update. It's a leaderboard. It's a game, Facebook. So Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, um, all those loyalty programs, if you've got a coffee card, Frankly, if you don't, I don't know what's wrong with you. But if you've got coffee carts, if you've got airline frequent flyer miles, um, if you use utility apps, that app on the lower left there is Fitocracy, which is an app that helps you, you know, remind you when to work out and gives you goals and stuff like that. It's a personal nightmare to me. But, you know, people are using these utility apps. Um, so we're using them even if we don't classify ourselves as gamers. But the gaming world is big. The people who do identify as gamers. We've got about 500 million people in the world spending an hour a day gaming, at least an hour a day gaming. That's a lot. Between them, they're racking up 3 billion hours a week playing online games globally. Can I just emphasize that 3 billion hours a week? That's a lot of time that we're spending on games. Um, the average child um, in a gaming culture, the US, UK, Japan, they're going to spend 10,000 hours playing games before they turn 21. This is a really interesting stat to me for two reasons. Um, one, 10,080 hours is the average amount of time a U.S. child will spend in all of their education between the ages of 10 and 18. And that's assuming perfect attendance. So 80 hours more for education than gaming. So what we effectively have is an entire new or separate version of education that these kids are going through. The other thing, I don't know if, you, if any of you have read The Outliers. Um, uh, Malcolm Gladwell has written a book about, um, essentially, 10,000 hours is like the mark, the, the time you have to take up in effortful study 
of any one activity to become an expert at it. After 10,000 hours, you are an expert at something. So these kids, when they turn 21, what they're experts at is gaming and that gaming world. You might not be able to read in some cases, but they can game. <laughs> um, this one's a bit of shock to me. I mean, I think Simon, you referred to, to it's not 18 year olds that we're talking about. Uh, the average age of gamers is 37 years old. So if we think about that, when we think about the 10,000 hours that, that US or high gaming culture students spend in, in gaming, it's 10,000 hours before they reach 21 or before they reach 18. This is another almost 20 years after that. So we've added 20 more years of gaming before we hit the average age of gamers. And if we've got an average age of 37, that means that we've got people who are 50, 60 playing games as well. And this is really important to us as academic publishers because while 37 and the 20s, the younger generation, is our prime audience in terms of academic publishing. They're the ones who are postgraduate new, new researchers. They're the ones that are producing the content that we rely on. Um, effectively, if you're looking at an average age of 37, that's all of our audiences that are gaming because it goes all the way up to 60. So we're looking at everyone in our audience that is import important um, for gaming. Um, so what I want to talk about today is sort of what we can learn from that phenomenon. What does that tell us about our audiences and what does that tell us about what we need to do to reach audience, especially in my line of work where we're talking about engaging communities and building communities. Um, so I'm going to talk a little bit about motivation, rewards, and meaningful behavior, but um, I'd like to, to just note that gamification is 75% is psychology and 25% technology. Um, I might disagree with Simon a little bit in the, in the, the importance of story. Story is, is really important, in my opinion, in terms of gamification. And that, to me, is the 75%, really. There's a lot going on in this, the psychology area. But if we think about gamification as applying gaming principles to non-game contexts in order to engage users, that psychology really matters to get the, applying the right gaming principles to the right non-game context, because we're not building games. What we're doing is gamifying something that's not a game. Um, so I want to start by talking about motivation. But first, I want to tell a story, a bit of a story. So before I worked at Wiley, I did my PhD in literature. Um, and when I was working on my PhD, when I got to my toughest chapter, I just couldn't, the thoughts weren't coming, had no idea what I wanted to write, had no idea what point I wanted to, to make. Um, what did I do? I played games. Um, I played Guitar Hero specifically. And you have no idea how many times I played this one song. I, can anybody hear that? I'll leave that going in the background if that's not too disturbing. Oh, it brings back memories. <laughs> I, no kidding. I, I spent hours and hours and hours with this, and I did not consider it work in any way, shape, or form. I, um, I'll just mute that so you can still watch the game. <laughs> really. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. Um, so I played hours, played this for hours, like 80 hours. If I played, spent 80 hours working on my thesis, I would have considered that hard work. 
80 hours on this, on the same song, just trying to get 10 extra points, wasn't work. That was relaxation. And I'm not a musical person. I have, I, I hum happy birthday. So I do not know anything about music. And this was fun to me because it took all the, the stress out of it. I didn't have to strum the, the strings in the right way. I didn't have to give it the right amount of emphasis. All I had to do was make sure that I hit the right key. And that was it. That was all I had to do. And that was fun. So I want to actually, because we've got a little bit of time. Sorry. If you want to watch the rest of Joan Jett, <laughs> you can watch it after the presentation. Um, so Jane McGonigal, who's done an absolutely fantastic TED Talk, if any of you are interested in following up on this today. Um, she called Gaming Can Make a Better World. Um, and it's an absolutely brilliant talk, and she believes that games can make um, life better, but also it can, they can make us better, because we're better in games than we are in reality. And this reminds me of my Guitar Hero situation. I was, I had so much fun in the gaming world. I was good at games, and I thought I was good because it kept telling me that I was good. So a lot of the things that games do um, to make us feel better are these things. So they give us clear objectives. They tell us, Okay, it's Mario Brothers, break this block. That's great. Um, they give us attainable goals. In order to get to the next level, you have to break 20 blocks. Fine, you already taught me how to build, break one block. I'm good. Um, then they build upon that and they tell you how to combine breaking a block with a jump and so forth. And build and build and build all the way up until the point where you can beat the boss level. And man, do you feel good when you beat that boss level. Um, so they give us things that are good for us, attainable goals, they give us help and support. The biggest wiki, we all know is Wikipedia. The second biggest wiki, you know, is World of Warcraft wiki. Um, it's gaming wiki. Um, but there's lots of help in games. There's lots of support. There's people who, there's all sorts of forums. If you get stuck on a level, you can go for help. Um, and games are fun. There's that elusive thing, whatever fun is, games do find it. It's different for every game, but um, somehow they inject a little bit of fun. And what this does for us is that we'll actively work to voluntarily overcome obstacles. And we don't find this in the real world. Like I said with my PhD, when I hit that, that block, I would spend 80 hours, but I didn't spend it, you know, happily. In games, when I, even though I couldn't get past the first level of Guitar Hero, I spent it happily to get past it because it made, me, made it fun. And one of the things it did was it gave me rewards all the time. So it gave me things like, <laughs> Gabe Zekerman calls them saps. Status, access, power, stuff. Um, so it gave me status. It put me up on a leaderboard. It says how well I was doing. You, you can have access to things. You get access to the next level. Um, you get power, so you, you sort of can bragging rights. And sometimes you get stuff, like the loyalty cards and so forth. You get a free coffee. Yay. Um, but the thing about games is that they're constantly rewarding us. And this is something that we need to pay attention to that younger generation. The people who are spending 10,000 hours gaming, in those 10,000 hours, they're being rewarded every five minutes. Every two minutes in certain games. You know, here's an achievement, here's a badge. You passed the first level. We've never seen such a high score as yours. So they're constantly being rewarded. And Judy Willis, who's a, a medical doctor, has looked into this a little bit. And the science behind that is the same as the science behind cocaine. Um, it's dopamine. Dopamine, when you take, uh, you sort of have a standard level of, of dopamine, and when you take cocaine, it sort of jumps you up. Then when you're coming down, it drops you down really, really far. So you're constantly going back for that kick. And in games, games are doing that to our audiences. To those people that are spending three billion hours a week, they're getting that kick all the time. And what 
I want to look at, I'm conscious well, of time, yeah. is that um, we don't we don't want to fall outside of that kick. We don't want to be the ones who drop them out of the kick. So even though I'm building them an academic website or an academic product of some sort, I don't want to be the person like like um, sorry Nathan mentioned earlier. Our competitors aren't other academic products. They're that world that users spend 10,000 hours in. And if they then go to my academic site and they don't get a kick, what does that mean for my product? I cannot stay competitive. Um, the crux of all of that is, is identifying what our meaningful behavior is. I think you guys have covered that a little bit more. So in the interest of time, okay, I'll skim through that. Yeah. And that's it. And that's what I'll leave you. Okay, thank you very much. Um, so I want to open up the discussion a bit more broadly now. We've got about 20 minutes left. Um, and Simon, you mentioned we should come back to terminology. <laughs> I mean, what, what is the difference between an interactive game and an interactive children's book? I mean, what, what, what are the borders here? I mean, what, what do the three of you think about the borders between books and games now, given, you know, use of tablet devices, mobile phones? Well, I, 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 would, I would say that there is a new genre to be defined here. I mean, obviously, if you look at what we're okay with, uh, you know, books, games, film, radio, theatre, stuff like that, but, but one of the problems we had with digital adaptations when we were originally trying to sell it to the market pre it being built is people were like, I don't really know what you're talking about. And you probably don't know what I'm talking about because you haven't really seen it either. But, um, but when you see it, you go, all oh, right, okay, it's that. Um, and everybody comes unstuck, well it's not book, it's not a game, so what is it? So we started calling it a digital adaptation. And because we thought, well you've got film adaptations, stage adaptations, what would a digital adaptation look like? Problem with that is it's not quite short or funky enough to sit next to the title, and bear in mind that you have only a certain number of, 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 sort of characters to use. So, I mean there is this problem that, you know, and, Something is a book or it's an ebook, which is just sort of an enhanced book, or it's a game or it's a story game. But there's, I, I do feel that there's a middle ground emerging, um, and we need to be not just trying to shoehorn it into books or games, but actually regard it as its own thing. Nathan, do you want to respond to that? Um, yeah, I mean, I largely agree with, with all of that, and yeah. I think that's underlined by the fact you know you upload as, as a as a traditional publisher, we upload any one product to to the to the app store you're forced to shoehorn it into to one of these things. And with, with children's products in particular, it's really interesting that there isn't even a children's section. You know, so you have to put it in a book section or you're kind of going, I don't really want to because it's not actually a game, it's just something that's got a bit of fun attached to it in some way. Do you put it in the game section and then you're seeing what you're up against. So I think it is all to be determined. Um, I don't think the consumer necessarily cares sometimes. It, it really depends and then it depends on is it going to be a parental purchase is it an adult buying something for themselves, particularly you know, if, if the product is aimed at the 37-year-old male? Is it male as well? Is that the demographic or is it split? I don't know. But um, it, you, know, it, it, you, you have to really consider who, you know, what, what, are you, what are you trying to do in the first place? What are you trying to target? And then so you're doing different things for different products. Yeah, yeah. I mean, from the absolute outset, we're, we're just trying to work out what we're trying to achieve, particularly if it has come from a book background in the first place. It's slightly different if, you're, if, you, if you have the opportunity to sit down with someone. You know, Naomi Alderman, who, who's very well known within the, within the game environment, is also a very, very successful author, but she's just got a completely different headspace. Um, and you know, it, when you get the opportunity to sit down with someone like Naomi and start trying to think about what you would do that kind of uh, states the needs of book world, but also does all this other stuff too. You know, 
it's almost like the, the, the playground is too big because we need to narrow it back and try to work out, you know, with, it, with our commercial heads on what are we trying to sell as well as what are we trying to achieve. So there's, there's a whole bunch of stuff that we have to consider uh, from that aspect. But then sometimes we're allowed to go away and play and, you know, if you get the opportunity to make a game, that's not our expertise. So that's when we need to call in all these other new skill sets and try and apply the things we do know really well to it. Thank you. Do you want to respond to any of that? Yeah. <laughs> I don't work in the book world. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I would agree with what they have to say from a personal standpoint, but I also uh, agree with Nathan that we, that was one of the slides I messed up, that we really need to work out what we want to sell. Because generally, we're not selling games, especially in academic publishing. We're not selling the game. So what are we selling, and how can we sell that better or more, um, or make it more engaging through game? I actually think even more, sorry, just because I think even more pertinent to that as well is under each of those categories in the App Store exist different audiences. So it's not necessarily is it a game, is it a book? It's like which audiences do you want to reach and where are they existing? So you might put something in the games category knowing that it's probably more of a book, but you're trying to reach out to the people you know in there. And that's okay, it muddies the water terribly, but it's that business pattern as well, isn't it? Yeah. Okay, great. Um, um, we've got time for questions from the floor. So, does anyone want to ask a question for our panel? I hope we do. Um, oh, yes, gentleman in the front. Yeah. Oh, God. I'm proud of myself having sat here. Do you think the notion of brand helps here? Because, because as you say, there is a story, a narrative, which exists and marks you in different ways. And, and from a consumer perspective, if there is a brand associated with that, in a way, I, okay, I, I see it as a, a game, I see it as a book. But, uh, is that part of the solution? And uh, not linked to that, I mean, the term transmedia seems to be going on. Mm -hmm. Is that a confusing term or a public um, I don't mind starting with that, because um, brand is incredibly important to us. And I think, so to tackle that first part, brand, yes. And what, what was quite surprising to me was when, when you start speaking to the likes of a, of a Ubisoft or an Activision, you know, they're phenomenally huge, and they want our brand. And all we're thinking about is, we're working with Activision, this is incredible. But they're equally excited about ours. I mean, they're equally excited about our skill set and the audience we will bring. But it's, 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 um, I think that's where the, the audience and the brand resonation with their audience and how those two are suddenly juxtaposed from two what there's a perception that they're uh, disparate kind of markets, maybe disparate audiences. When the two come together, the marketing opportunities around that are phenomenal. Actually, there's a lot of convergence with, the, with those kind of the, the audience anyway. But it suddenly allows us to engage in a gaming environment, you know, and into different kind of retail channels, and maybe to different types of people, into different uh, publications to review things that we would ever go with a book per se. And, and vice versa for, for a gaming um, company. What was the second half of the question, Laurie? Oh, the tra yeah, transmedia. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, one of the ideas, we, we, you know, we we're always playing around with, with these things. And I think, I mean, you, you've addressed this to, to a large extent. Anyway, it's kind of, from, from us, we, we, you know, in a standard enhanced ebook form, we would kind of go, right, we've got some, got some rich media, we've got some audio, we've got some great video content, we've got amazing images and illustrations, we've obviously got the text. And, you know, and that's all kind of old school, and that's traditional now. But it's at which point can anyone start, even if it's just in a basic app form, start uh, involving gameplay I into that as well? I kind of don't like the term very much, but it, and I, I don't really know what it means. I think everyone changes what it means. A little bit like gamification means 
various things to various people. Um, yes, I think we're doing it. Uh, there's a huge lot of experimentation going around it, and I think it will happen with, with other ways too, in a slightly more um, exposed way than it has already, where, where game companies will, will bring a lot more text narrative maybe into certain things than they have done in the past, which we think is our, our core skill set. So I think, you know, who knows where it's going to go. It's, it's kind of there, and I think it will come out a lot of different, different ways. Tom, do you want to follow up on transmedia? And yeah, I, I don't really understand. I've, been, I've talked about it on numerous occasions, I still don't really know what it is myself. Um, I, I think the lovely thing about when you look at like film and radio and television, actually, the very fact that they're attached to the media that they're delivered in actually make, makes it make sense. Whereas, but I find it very difficult in book as well, you know. Um, so I find that a difficult one. Uh, on the brand side, yeah, I mean, like bringing Favour and Favour in first was brilliant because it just gave, you know, the, the storytelling credential. Uh, having the, the games publishers alongside it was great because that sort of gave it equal push on the game side. The 39 Steps thing, we thought probably, you know, it's got brand recognition. There's been films, there's, been, there's the stage show, there's the obviously the book and stuff like that. Um, now, that is actually, it was it's brilliant having a brand recognition if you're on a platform where nothing else has the name of the 39 Steps. So actually putting it out on Steam, there isn't another 39 Steps game, so we're just up there. Put it on, if you, if you search for it on the iPad, there's six others. And the problem at the moment is it's just called the 39 Steps. And because we don't have what it is next to it, because I don't know what it is, you know, um, you're sort of relying on people finding it. And it's that findability thing which is always coming down and sort of, you know, kicking our teeth in numerous cages. The other huge brand, obviously, is the author. Um, and actually the developer, particularly in the games world, uh, gamers generally follow developers quite closely because they see that's where the innovation is. So I think you're right, Nathan. Why don't we put those together? Also put in the, the musician, who uh, makes your soundtrack because they will inevitably have a following which is very iTunes savvy as well. And if you add all of these different marketing strands together, I think that's something quite cool. Okay, great. Uh, lady in the front here, has got a question? Uh, yeah. Thank you. Simon uh, mentioned that, um, that um, stories used to contextualise gameplay and using quests as action prompts. I'd like to say a little more about some of those anecdotes or some of the how stories used to contextualise gameplay and it's like the same effect as the game was used to contextualise your online stories because that almost the reverse so so say more about how story contextualise gameplay is great. Yeah I mean <coughs> like games like film like books they're set in worlds they have characters and um, they have some form of narrative which takes them from the, the, the beginning to the end of the, the, the experience. I just think traditionally what games do, because they're focused on gameplay, what they're trying to do is draw people into the gameplay and give them some sort of motivation for playing that game. So traditionally what you'd have is, if we go back to 10 years, you would have cutscenes, and you still sort of have them in a sense. So your cutscene was a little bit of story, which effectively bookended the bit of gameplay that you're going to play, and, and once you got through that piece of game, you've got your other bit of, you've got your other cutscene. So you got these bookended bits of stories, and what you did in, in, in between was effectively your challenge to get past that particular quest or that particular call. Um, so I would say that not much has changed. I would say the actual the story underpinning the games are becoming a lot more coherent, sort of deep, and 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 you know they are better things, but. At the moment, there aren't many examples where the driving force of the gameplay is the unraveling of the story. And in as much as the reason you in interact is a direct progression and sort of um, and, and show of the story that's being told. Um, if you go back in time, uh, 
And if you care to look up on, uh, actually, if you go to storymechanics.com site, I have a, a list of 10 games you should check out. Um, but uh, there, is, there is a really cool one called The Dark Eye, which was made by a company called Inkscape. And what they did is they took um, nine or 10 of Edgar Allan, Poe's, Edgar Allan Poe's poetry, and they basically infused this house with them, and they gave a narrative where you came into this house, and you yourself had your own sort of story going on, but effectively in the different rooms and stuff, you were being fed bits of this poetry. Now, that was brilliant because actually the story there was being fed to you as part of the gameplay experience. It wasn't being used as a quest fashion or, or whatever, what we used to now. Um, and there was this other sort of lovely um, experimental bits of storytelling, uh, like there was a band called The Residents, they did a few things, of which Bad Day on the Midway is really good, you want to check it out. Um, and Mist is the most obvious one, okay, it had puzzles in there, but the puzzles actually, in that respect, the game could have lived without the puzzles. What was lovely was the unravelling of this mystery around you. You were unpicking this crazy story um, by exploring an environment. It was a bit of immersive theatre, but just delivered in digital technology. Thank you, Julie. Yeah, I think that for, that for from my perspective, I kind of think that, that story is the, the, the key element, because we're not, in academic publishing for, for sure, we're not selling the game itself. So story to me is more about what it is that we want to sell, design that narrative arc for the game experience. So where do we want our users to get to? What's their master level? And to me, I consider that the story arc, and that's what drives the game. Getting and progressing the user from beginner to intermediate to more experienced to masterful of that system. And it's not necessarily the system that, that, that not the skill points, like learning how to push buttons. They don't need that. What they need to know is, is sort of what's behind that. What are we trying to sell behind that? So to me, that story is important. In some way, it's like converting text into film or drama, something like that. Nathan, did you have a few No, I You do, okay. Okay, so try, uh, Julie at the back, if I see you there, you've got a question? In the period of convergence we're going through, I think people trying to get into the business, whichever business you decide that you want to get into here, it's difficult to decide what direction you think this is going to go in. So are publishers going to end up um, fighting for that relatively scarce resource, which is kind of game developers at the moment? where there could be a kind of price war over those particular people who have that mix of creativity and technology skills, or are, is it going to be much more about the kind of 39 steps sort of favour and various other people collaborating? So where do people who kind of are excited by this idea go and take their skills and their ideas? Is it to publishers or is it to games? <coughs> or do they have to kind of invent their own way uh, Nathan, I'm looking at you. I was going to start by saying, uh, I have a hunch, certainly in the near future, it's going to remain collaborative. Because we, we both recognise each other's, if we're just saying it's about games companies and publishers, we recognise each other's brands, as we've already discussed, and our core skill sets. Um, over time, I think there will be convergence with that, but there's never really been convergence with film yet. And a lot of that comes down to the budgets that are involved in these things as well. We're never going to be in a position where we can spend you know, tens or hundreds of millions of pounds uh, creating a game, other people can, but we've got other things we will bring to the table, and it's the same as exists with, it existed with films. Um, and there's certainly, you know, the, the push to kind of retain wider IP where possible, and those kind of things. So I think that's where a publisher, a traditional publisher, maybe can move a little bit more aggressively into that space, 
if you create something yourself from the outset, even though you do, the, the concept and the characters and the story and the representation thing, if you, even if you aren't the person who can execute the build, you retain you retain the rights. Maybe maybe that will be, you know, one step towards it. I would say there's a collaboration on a publisher level, but there's also a collaboration on a creative level as well. So, you know, using our own product as a, a, an example, so so we worked with the Citizens Theatre Company in Glasgow to do all the voice acting in it. But basically, like we 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 turned all of the dialogue in the book into a performance. And now I could have just you know thought, well, I've done a fair amount of voiceover, and I'll go and do some voiceover talent. But I thought, no, I, want, I would like this to be theatrically acted. So we. We got one of the um, directors in a guy called Guy Hollands, um, and we went into a studio and we basically ran the whole thing as a play and it really added to it. And I think rather than, I think especially if you're dealing with smaller companies, the idea of just giving them everything to do under their own sort of, you know, their, their own roof, I think can be a little bit dangerous because you're assuming, like, because what we're sort of talking about here is, is massive convergence of skills from all different industries, and all the industries have spent ages refining their particular skill sets. So the idea that suddenly we go, oh yeah, but I do them all, I just think that seems a bit of a nonsense. I think like, you know, properly scoping what it is you want to do and then choosing the right partners and that mightn't just be one person. And I think the risk thing is, is, a, is a massive issue. I mean, like, if you are collaborating with EA and stuff, if they're behind it, they, they, they'll, you know, they're big enough to put their money into it. If you're not, if you're dealing with smaller companies, they don't have the cash flow to go, oh, well, okay, we'll, we'll fund the £200,000, which this is needed. But neither are the publishers at the moment, because that they are figures in, a, in an area which hasn't been de-risked for them yet, which it doesn't really match up. So I think that is a big problem at the moment. So you could show us a bit of 39 steps, we're just about to finish here. Yeah. Yeah, why don't I plug it up when you get one last question? Hasn't got time, yeah. one last question? Yeah, there's one over on the... Oh, sorry, you missed... Yeah, they did the front there, yeah. whether it be with the, the games company or with, with the author or the writer behind it. It's just about getting in there early and then understanding where you're both coming from. And I think it, to Simon's point about kind of limit, limiting risk on, on all sides because we don't know each other's parts, if it, that's, that's, how, that's the first point of call and how you choose who you work with. You know, as big as Ubisoft are, complicated as that is, that the, you know, when we got, got into the relationship with them is because the people we met and sat down with understood us well, they, they, they chose to try and understand us, and we tried to cho uh, chose to try and understand them, and then collaborated. The Charlie Higson example, you can imagine how many books we, we represent come, come through that you could gamify to some level. But it wouldn't be, if Charlie wasn't a gamer, which he is, we would never have sat down and even had a conversation with him, because it has to be collaborative. Um, but as I said in a previous uh, piece, the, the kind of the rights element is a quagmire, but it's just, that's why you have to cherry pick which titles you're going to work with, which authors and which fans. So I think you see we're starting to play, so please could you join with me in thanking our panel.